Welcome to Sitting in the Intersection, a podcast about relationships across differences. I'm CJ, and you won't hear much of my voice in this month's episode, but I promise you many other voices and amazing stories. So without further ado, tune in, listen up, let's start the conversation. We've got to call this as it is, and it is uh, PCBS, and it has nothing to do with discrimination. HB2. Um, and the stain that it's put on North Carolina as a state. We won't be pushed around, and we stand with House Bill 2 because it's the right common sense thing to do. So-called bathroom bill scared at all and I have no problem with transgender people using the bathroom and the I bathroom I, build bathrooms bathroom 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 among other things required transgender people use public bathrooms according to their gender at birth what if a transgender female wants to compete in athletics do they not have a clear physiological advantage so I, I just don't know remember it's Renee Richards what if Bruce Jenner wanted to compete in the Olympics well, me- never forget never forget that Bruce Jenner A.K.A. Caitlyn Jenner is still, according to his own words, once he puts on the dress, he's still sexually attractive to women. So House Bill 2 protects women. They are now telling every university that accepts federal funding uh, that uh, boys who may think they're a girl can go into a girl's locker room or restroom or shower facility. And that begins, I assume, tomorrow. It keeps men out of the ladies' room, and I think that every woman should have the right to peaceably and reasonably expect that the person in the restroom before she entered was a woman. The bathroom bill. Bathrooms. Bathroom. 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 When you go into a restroom or your wife goes into a restroom, you assume the only other people going to that restroom or shower facility is going to be a person of the same gender. And let me tell you, I'm not concerned about political correctness. Everybody knows that a transgendered woman is a man. And everybody knows that a transgendered man is a woman. And we have allowed common sense to go out of the window. And in the name of political correctness, they've made us soft and they've made us wimps. And we think that the only way to display love is to be mushy and to just continue to give ground. Let me tell you something. Love is displayed when God's truth is stood for. I don't like the rhetoric that's often used on the right saying what the fear is. It's the basic expectation of privacy that I hear from mom and dads and families that when their daughter or son goes into a facility, a restroom, they expect people of that gender, of that uh, uh, biological sex or gender, to be the only other ones in that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the expectations that we've had for many, many years. If you've listened to the news over the past year, it's likely you've heard someone mention North Carolina's House Bill 2, aka the bathroom bill. Along with some other discriminatory things, this bill made it so that transgender folks would be required to use the bathroom associated with the sex they were assigned at birth, and it would prevent local governments from across North Carolina 
from creating and implementing their own anti-discrimination and employment policies. Now, there are two schools of thought that tend to dominate the conversation on this bill, and in my experience, people are very strongly on one side or the other. First, there's the side of WTF and CGOP. <laughs> we are the ones who've had to listen to our out-of-state friends and family ask, What is happening in North Carolina? And we heard stories of people canceling their tours and trips to North Carolina. Sometimes out of solidarity, yes, but other times out of fear. On the other side, as you heard in the beginning of this episode, there are many people, I've heard as high as 50% of North Carolinians, who believe this bill is a demonstration of their Christian values, or that it is simply meant to protect women and children. I really, really struggle to understand this side. For one, I always felt like the Bible's entire premise was about God being the only one who could judge and Jesus calling on Christians to love one another. Also, there have been exactly zero cases of trans people in North Carolina, or anywhere else for that matter, harassing women or children in the bathroom. So, what's the problem? Anyway, needless to say, I'm part of the former group. News outlets were outspoken on both sides of the issue, oftentimes giving airtime to people spreading misinformation and hate, but also occasionally finding time to celebrate the North Carolina-based activists who were organizing and rallying against the bill, people who were writing, calling, meeting, and disrupting the flow of business as usual to express their disgust on the issue. I believe it was because of this huge organized outcry that government entities, artists like Bruce Springsteen and Pearl Jam, and businesses like the NCAA and PayPal began to boycott North Carolina. And in the end, this turned out to be a pretty effective protest tactic. This is Sitting in the Intersection, a newish podcast about relationships across differences. Today, if it wasn't obvious enough already, our episode is about bathrooms. We'll share with you personal stories and inspiring institutional actions that relate to the intersection of gender identity and bathrooms. We dedicate this episode to every person who has ever had to think twice about where they will go to relieve their bladders, and to every trans or gender fluid kid who's ever felt ashamed, embarrassed, or even scared to go to the bathroom at school. First on the docket, we hear from a close friend of mine, Dolores. Dolores is a trans guy from Texas who has spent several years now living in the country in North Carolina. I met Dolores originally at a flirting party in 2011. We engaged in some heated debate that night, and since then our relationship could be best described as movement buddies, country neighbors, co-conspirators, and stage sharers. They use they, them, their pronouns, and this is their story. I know I might not look it, but I'm a bit risk averse. I've been this way as long as I can remember. I like to know what I'm getting into. 
So maybe it's not even that I have an aversion to risky behavior as much as I think it's more accurate to say that I'm risk aware. <laughs> For example, I'm not generally the type of person who's gonna just pop off and punch a Nazi in the face without giving some consideration to the risk associated with such an action. <laughs> it doesn't mean that I won't do it. I probably would. But I would think long and hard about it first. <laughs> and you know, deciding whether or not to punch a Nazi in the face totally warrants a certain amount of risk assessment. But there are other moments when I engage in risk assessment that I'm fairly certain most other folks don't think about. See, almost every time I have to pee, I assess the risks. For most of my life, I've used the women's bathroom because that's how I've been socialized. But the thing is, I'm not a woman. Every time, I walk toward a woman's bathroom. I feel the weight of that untruth pushing back against every fiber of my being. And there are times when my non-womanness is confirmed by other people in the bathroom with me. Like one time I was in the bathroom at an airport washing my hands when I looked up into the mirror to see a woman walk behind me into the bathroom, look at me, very quickly turn around and walk out, reference the gender marker on the bathroom door, <laughs> walk back in, head down, going straight into a bathroom stall. <laughs> Another time, more recently, I was at the bathroom in, uh, at the outlet mall in Mebane. I love the outlet mall. <laughs> <laughs> and I walked in, and as I walked past these two teenage girls, one of them stopped and yelled at me that this was the ladies' room. I turned around to look at them, and they eventually realized their mistake and fell all over each other laughing on their way out. I'm uh, not so sure what they thought was so funny. Both of these incidents took place years before I started medically transitioning. So you can't really blame it on my mustache. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I don't really like getting yelled at. So I get pretty anxious nowadays when I have to go to the bathroom while I'm out in public. I mean, I totally kick into risk assessment mode. Shit, I have to pee. Okay, is there a gender neutral bathroom? Of course not. <laughs> okay, which bathroom do I use? If I use the women's bathroom, it won't feel right, and I might get yelled at, or I might frighten someone, or some kid might loudly ask their mom if I'm a boy or a girl. But if I use the men's bathroom, well, then I'm just in a room full of a bunch of dicks. <laughs> but seriously, if I use the men's bathroom, I worry for my safety. And I can't clearly articulate that fear because I tend to not take that particular risk. I've tried it once though, recently, at the Chapel Hill Public Library. 
I said to myself, you know what, fuck it. This is Chapel Hill. <laughs> I'm going to use the men's bathroom. So I did. I went into a stall, obviously, and, uh, and I peed. Went well. <laughs> and then I heard someone walk into the bathroom. And then someone else walked into the bathroom. And then I turned around in the stall to face the toilet so that nobody thought I was pooping. <laughs> but my point is, I waited. I sat in that stall and I waited until I was sure that I was the only one in the bathroom. And when I finally came out, I sped out of that bathroom, hoping to God that I wouldn't run into some dick all the way out. <laughs> you know, I wanted the experience to feel liberating. I hoped that it would feel liberating. Uh, but mostly, I felt afraid. I go through this process of risk assessment every single time I have to pee. And if you're hanging out with me and you don't know me that well, you probably wouldn't even realize it. And as I continue to make my transition and I start to be perceived less like a woman and a little more like a man and eventually a lot more like a man, the burden grows heavier and the risk looms larger. And that's just the reality of being a guy with a vagina. But I'm grateful, too, for the public establishments that I frequent that relieve me of that burden by providing gender-neutral bathrooms or single-stall bathrooms, and for all the people who offer to pee with me so that I don't have to do it alone. <laughs> the bathroom bill. Bathrooms. Bathroom. 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 So our society is still thinks pretty much in a binary way about gender. Yeah. Um, and our students think less in less of a binary way about gender. And so we both have students um, who have transitioned from the gender assigned at birth to the other gender, so to speak, in a binary model. Mm -hmm. And we have students who are in the, in the process of transitioning. And we have students who don't identify with their birth the gender assigned to them at birth, the binary gender assigned to them at birth, or the other binary. Mm -hmm. So um, just sort of for a shorthand is we talk about trans and gender non-conforming students. And so both those groups, um, uh, a point, what would be the right word, um, perhaps a lightning rod for um, whether or not the society, this is the structure around them is supporting their gender identity is the issue of bathrooms. Mm -hmm. Where can I go to the bathroom? Where basic human need comes up six times a day. So it's, you know, it's not a small issue. Yeah. Um, that was Mary James, Dean of Institutional Diversity at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. I had the chance to visit Reed in March after I'd heard about some changes they had made to the bathrooms on campus. In short, they've worked over the last several years to create more all-gender and single-stall restrooms in an effort to make them more accessible for trans and gender non-conforming students, staff, and visitors.
While there, I sat down with two administrators who were instrumental in making the changes, and I chatted with a few students about their thoughts on the issue. Up next, you'll hear from Dayspring Mattel, Assistant Dean of Students for Inclusive Community. In her role, Dayspring works closely with students, whereas Mary James works more directly with institutional level programs and policies. The two of them together, along with some powerful activism from students current and past, have managed to take some simple steps that have had a hugely positive impact on how it feels to live, work, and learn at Reed. Here's Dayspring. Uh, so I started at re working at Reed in the fall of 2011, mm -hmm. and at that point, um, there had been a um, kind of informal group of staff and students uh, that had organized to start working um, at just addressing, trying to get a sense of what the experiences on campus were like for trans and gender nonconforming students and figure out where, how, how could we better support um, students. There wasn't a major campus incident or anything. I think it just was one of those uh, great examples of a time when the group was kind of being proactive and yeah. thinking ahead about like that clearly this is a group that is experiencing marginalization within higher education yeah. culture overall yeah. um, so let's think about how we're serving those students in our own community uh, so when so that group did some great initial work and that helped support um, a group of students that then brought a, a more formal proposal to we have a lot of committees on yes. So that group sort of put together an, a formal proposal to the facilities committee advocating for um, renovating some restrooms on campus to make them all gender. At that point, this was kind of a new idea on campus. And so there was a lot of just lack of awareness, some resistance, I think not out of ill intent, but I think just lack of understanding of why this was such a significant issue. And so the proposal, it, it didn't get as much momentum as students were really hoping. Um, it did lead to renovating one restroom in um, one campus building, which is where the dining hall is, where a lot of student group spaces are. So it was a great place to kind of do this for the first time. Um, so they renovated one um, multi-user restroom there to be gender um, inclusive. And said like let's just see how this goes let everyone get comfortable to the idea of it and it was fine it was like not so it was a non-issue it was like such a non-issue it was just as not, these things are not a big deal at all yeah. yeah so that just sort of you know happened for a few years um but students continued to ask for like we need more we need more of these and there's a lot of great um things that are already happening on campus that aren't really formalized like within our residence halls um, the residence halls are all gender inclusive, so all the floors mm -hmm. are mixed, um, and the restrooms are all gender inclusive there. So, like already, this is a pretty normalized thing for mm -hmm. students. But I think it's much less. Um, a lot of faculty and staff. This is still kind of a new idea. What did the students have to say about these changes? Let's hear from them. Most of them. I think that I've seen like there's a lot of gender-neutral bathrooms and they're basically just normal bathrooms. They just have no particular gender assigned to them. And also even in the bathrooms that aren't like specifically gender-neutral, like the ones in that hallway. Yeah. Like if you, if I was like in that bathroom and I saw somebody who like 
appeared to me to be biologically female, I would not be concerned about that. Yeah, <laughs> like, like or vice versa. <laughs> right, exactly. Like I used like, I, even in the bathrooms that aren't like specifically gender neutral. Like they I feel like uh, the way read students think about it, they are like effectively gender neutral. Yeah. You think that's like a feeling that students have coming in to read? Like, Maybe. I, I think the read yeah, culture just sort of fosters it and then like I don't know, once you get here You're in Maybe there's a bit yeah, there's a bit, probably a bit of a culture shock, but then you get used to it pretty quickly. I mean, there's there's so many non-gender binary conforming individuals and so many trans individuals that you you learn almost immediately not to make assumptions about people's gender. Yeah. Um, we introduce each other with pronouns and stuff like that. So there's there's not really any point in worrying about like based on how someone looks, what's actually going on with them. Yeah. I mean, the way we this is not any of our business. So like, you just kind of let people do what they're gonna do. And that carries over in the bathroom, I guess. Yeah. I think, like, the default should be a similar thing where, like, no one is worried about other people's gender. I don't think it should impact us negatively. I don't... I think that it's it's good to have empowerment from your gender, um, but I also don't think that, like... We, it's something that we need to worry about, you know? It, it allows people to just kind of do what they're going to do and feel comfortable in themselves, and I think that's what's most important. The bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Um. It's pretty inspiring to me to hear about how Reed was able to acknowledge that the times are changing and that they needed to take action. Did it happen overnight? No. Was it as simple as it sounds? Probably not. But they did it. They saw an opportunity to show up for their students, and they did it. Yes, this probably created other opportunities for critique and criticism from outside sources, but they decided that their students' sense of safety and belonging was more important. And that, that is inspiring. In my opinion, more institutions of higher education could stand to take a page from Reed's book. I could go on and on about institutional level changes in higher education. What can I say? I'm an activist and former university employee. But the truth is that these sorts of policies have real individual level impact. So let's get a little more personal. Join us as we sit down with Dolores, whose life story you heard a bit earlier, to discuss how North Carolina's HB2 affected their life. So bathrooms. So your story in our press series is about bathrooms, so we'll have that context. But I wonder if you could just talk personally about I mean, HB2, you know, and then I guess on like a, on just like your personal level, like what comes up for you around bathrooms as you're in your transition process? Mm. Um, I mean, I think you do a great job of talking about that in the story, but. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is that I never... Until I really started um, expressing my gender as more masculine, I didn't think a lot about what bathroom I would use. Um, and, 
and the more that I started to sort of like express my gender identity the more I think my um, anxiety around using the bathroom increased and I think it started initially as like uh, you know like walking to being like okay I have to pee and then walking toward a door and saying and seeing a sign that said like ladies on the door (laughs) was just like an internal cringe moment for me um because it felt not true to who I was right like it felt like making that choice meant you know so on one level it's like what you know it's like fucking plumbing it's a hole in the ground and the, the shit goes it all ends up in the same place right and on the other hand it's like symbolically like a denial of like who I know myself to be um and who I'm able to like say to the world that I am right so um you know and then there have been times definitely pre-testosterone where I would go into the bathroom and you know get weird looks or I'd go into the bathroom and some adult would be in there with their kid and their kid would be like is that a boy or a girl right you know and I'm like just trying to wash my hands <laughs> right. that's uh, that's it you know um and you know now I, I think pre-testosterone things like using the bathroom while traveling were things that I didn't think too much about because I'd be like well you know I'm traveling like in terms of thinking about safety um and now as i transition things like in general my um anxiety around the bathroom has increased um so i spend a i spend a lot of time thinking about where i'm going to go to the bathroom which is a really like annoying thing to have to spend so much of your time thinking about (laughs) yeah Um, yeah it is because you just want to go and then move on yeah and i don't i don't think that that people who don't think about that understand the extent to which people who do have to think about it actually think about it or the anxiety that it increases or that it that it causes so what does it feel like for something like HB2 to happen and that be such a public conversation? Um, I mean, in some ways, I think it, it makes... One of the things that is the most infuriating about HB2 is that it displaces... fear and it the fact of the matter is that trans and gender nonconforming people experience exponentially more fear and anxiety around going to the bathroom period than non-trans 
people do. And not just fear, but real danger. Yes, and real danger. So to have that narrative flipped is violent. And it totally invisibilizes the experience that a number of people in this country have on a daily basis that impacts not just our emotional health, but our physical health. And the fact of the matter is that to go into a restroom and act a fool or be a creep or victimize somebody is a crime, has been a crime. And what, what HP2 says is that trans and transgender people are the committers of those crimes simply by virtue of their presence. And it's not, and you know, like it's, so it's one thing for, for adults to have this conversation, to navigate this issue, to have our feelings around it. And it's also another thing to know that there are more trans and gender nonconforming kids out in schools now than there probably have been ever before. Mm-hmm. And just to be clear, not that there are more of those students, but that more of them are out. And to be a child and to have to hear people create legislation and to criminalize children not that it makes it any more acceptable to criminalize like adult behavior, but to criminalize children. That's, that's the crime. Right. And I, I've been thinking so much during this HP2 bullshit around kids that feel their trans identity and aren't yet out, but having to hear their parents and hear people Mm -hmm. in their communities talk so negatively and so Mm -hmm. viciously against Mm -hmm. what they may see as a, as a, as a liberating identity. It's just heartbreaking to me. It makes me like sick. And it just puts another layer of shame. And it's victim blaming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. So, where do you find joy? Um, mm. I, f- I find joy in my facial hair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I find joy in the sound of my voice. I find joy in being. Want to hear more about Dolores? There's more where that came from. We sat down one deliciously warm evening outside of the barn where I'm staying right now and talked about everything from what it feels like to come into queerness to the bodily changes that excite them about transitioning, from family struggles to public perception of trans bodies. We've posted the full interview alongside this episode. 
If you have some extra time, why not give it a listen? That's it for this episode of Sitting in the Intersection. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Dolores, Mary, Dayspring, Jordan, and those Reed students I chatted with. The music in this episode is from Layla Noor and the Love Riot. I love their song, Boy. You can find more from them at LaylaNoor.com and on Facebook and YouTube. And, as always, thank you for listening. If you have a minute, we'd love for you to hop on the iTunes and leave us a review. It really helps our podcast as we're getting started and hoping to grow. And if you have a few more minutes, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook by searching at Sitting in the X. Until next time, bye.